Rusty Quill presents. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. It's not always nice, falling in love. When it's good, it's the best, but sometimes you fall in love with the wrong person or fall in love the wrong way. Worst of all is when you fall in love and you know, without a doubt, it will never be reciprocated. And what do you do when that happens? Some people let that unrequitable love fester until it turns into a sick and violent thing inside their heart. Others love freely from the shadows, waiting and wanting and yearning for their moment. Today's story concerns a young man who falls in love with a boy interred at the same mental institution in West Virginia. And, though he knows it will never be a two-way street, by the end of this story there will be no questions as to the intensity of his feelings. But first, this month's recommendations. This month's literature recommendation is I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Maya Angelou's seminal 1969 autobiography. Concerned with a young Maya's early life, this first in a series of seven autobiographies sees her coming of age as a young black woman in the American South during the 1930s and 40s. Angelou's flowing, poetic approach to prose keeps the book well-paced, even considering its extremely dark subject matter. Rape, racism, poverty, and other intense themes are approached in a way that is both honest and brutal. 
without dwelling in the mire. The book does not focus on pain and despair so much as a young woman's growing to understand her own internal wellspring of power and confidence through years of adversity. It's my strongly held opinion that this book is a must-read. Maya Angelou approaches the subject with such deftness, every word is like watching a ballerina dancing through a tornado. Pick it up, buy it, read it. This month's random horror recommendation is Pan's Labyrinth, Guillermo del Toro's 2006 fantasy film. The movie follows the adventures of a young girl, Ophelia, as she tries to complete three objectives given to her by an enigmatic fawn she comes across in an abandoned labyrinth. The goat-legged creature tells her she is the reincarnation of an underworld princess and if she completes these tasks, she'll have her immortality and titles restored. Whether any of this is real or not is up to the viewer, as it's not hard to believe most of what Ophelia experiences in the movie could be all in her imagination. She is living in the middle of a war zone in Francoist Spain in 1944 during the story, and beset on all sides by the very real horrors men commit during war. While it's presented as a fantasy story, Pan's Labyrinth very much dips its toes into the horror genre, more so than many of its contemporaries in the genre from the time. There is plenty of gore, danger, and frightening visuals, which, coupled with Del Toro's eye for set character and creature design, make this, in my opinion, one of the finer horror films ever made. Mileage may vary, in that regard, from person to person, but nobody will argue that Del Toro's Labyrinth is an excellent watch and an absolute must-see. I've left links to both recommendations in the episode description, and you can hear more about them in the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club episode coming out in two weeks. During the HLC episodes, I go in-depth on the month's recommendations and talk about a bunch of other stuff I've been watching, reading, etc. Join the conversation at facebook.com slash westsidefairytaleshorror and lit club. Now, without further ado, today's story. The Three Flights of Mateo Jefferson. It was an oddly cool June afternoon when Matteo Jefferson made his first long run for the fences. The fences, of course, were of little concern to him, being nothing more than stout four-foot posts and the three seemingly endless trails of rusted wire that began with the brickwork left off past the front gate, continuing out of sight behind the hills heading toward the coal mine. Matteo was far more concerned about Mr. Chifford Lure's blue-tick coonhound Rex whom the lot of us could already see closing the distance with little effort. There you go, said Arnold Capley, kicking at the anklets of the leg irons he'd been put in as punishment a few days earlier. The chain rattled and caught my attention, and I saw the chafing on his scrawny, dark ankles. His skin was black enough that the raw, red flesh was more garish than the marks on my own ankles. We all watched the boy a young, legally ageless teenager like the rest of us, darting across the freshly sprouted cornfield. His bare feet kicked up curds of dirt shoulder-high behind him. He was a member of Detachment G, the work party named for the hall he lived in at the asylum. And so far down the line, from Capley and myself, he seemed like little more than a gnat scurrying over a filthy brown tablecloth. Boy gets to that fence, he's free, Capley said 
putting his shovel down in the dirt and resting his chin atop the worn and cracked shaft. His eyes were wide enough you could see the whites all around. That blue tick can't jump. Won't jump. I tell you, that boy gets the fence. He's free as a damn bird. I imagine that, for Mateo, the moment was short and terribly personal. If I were him, my focus would have been laser tight on that fence. I could almost feel the cold press of the earth the way he might be feeling it, the tightness of the skin between his toes as they dug into the ground to push him. Even the occasional sharp poke of sticks and rocks in the mud, I could feel that too. In my head, at least. Maybe we all could. I think all of us wanted to cheer him on some, raise our broken farm tools into the air and shake them and scream. But Mr. Chifford Lure threw back a long, ugly look at us from the saddle of his horse and we bent ourselves back to sod-busting. Like most of the others, I worked slowly and peeked back behind me, cheering silently for Mateo to make it to that fence, to jump the ugly, rusted wire and make for the river, where he could hop in the water and lose Rex in this place in a heartbeat. They'd look for him, but not hard. He could hop a freight train in town and ride it the hell out of this valley, away from Weston, West Virginia, and this cursed place. It was a damn shame Rex caught him. The dog wasn't cruel, save unless Mr. Chifford Lure commanded that he be. But he had a firm bite that would only tighten if you didn't give in right off the bat. Capley's arms had a series of purple-white scars that testified to both the dog's danger and patience. The arm was wounded, but still there, after all, when a dog that size could easily have made it not be. Rex caught Mateo twenty strides shy of the wire, tackling him like I'd seen a tiger attack a hunk of dead turkey on a string at the Cincinnati Zoo one time. That flop-eared dog hopped into the air and curled his front paws over Mateo's neck and shoulders, dropping the boy into the mud and sliding him a good five feet. Like I said, I was far away, but I could still hear Mateo cursing that dog until Mr. Chifford Lure jogged his horse over to break up the tangle. Hell, I thought he might have had it, Capley said to himself, stretching his chest so hard I heard his sternum pop. The noise drew my attention, and for a second too long, I suppose, my gaze lingered on the sinewy outlines of Capley's naked upper body. He noticed the trespass in a second, and all sense of calm fled him. He screamed at me. Fuck you! Fucking looking at me! Don't you fucking look at me! Don't you fucking look at me! He lost his composure in a second and started pacing, breathing hard through his teeth and out through his nose. He took up the shovel in both hands and, though he was terribly scrawny, started twisting the shaft. The dry wood squealed. At the far end of the field, Mateo lay on his stomach with his legs up in the air. Rex playing up a mean growl while Mr. Chifford Lure clapped irons on Mateo. I'd have liked to watch. It was the only interesting thing that had happened in weeks or maybe months. A diversion of any kind was welcome in this place. I'll fucking kill you! Capley hissed now, poking the air in front of me with his shovel. His eyes rolled up and down in his skull so that they almost flickered. His brown irises turned into a swirl of color by the sheer speed of movement. White and brown and white and brown and white. It seemed impossible that he could focus on me, much less hit me with the shovel, but he managed it all the same, popping loose one of my shirt's three remaining buttons and leaving an ugly scratch on my stomach. So I hit him with my own shovel. 
hard. His eyes finished their mad elevations and settled on up as a final destination, the weight of their stopping enough to make Capley's suddenly stiff body fall flatly backward like a plank. I looked at Mr. Chifford Lewis, now carting Mateo onto his feet and tying him to the saddle of the horse, and then down to Capley. I could feel it then, plying at the edges of my brain, treating my self-control like bark to be peeled off the heartwood of my sanity. Painful, then pleasurable. I found it swallowing me up before I had a second to think. To consider otherwise. I stood over Capley and rested the sharp, spade end of my shovel on his throat. I put my foot on the little outcropping of rusted iron and prepared to drive the thing home. Mr. Chifford Lure and Rex were far away, too far to intercede. I could smell, for just a second, the stream behind my former parents' home in Blunt. I was almost there again, fresh water and snot streaming from my nose and the sharp, coppery taste of blood, the feel of bleeding, the fiery pain of welts raising all across my face from the beating I'd received. Then I really was getting hit. I saw my shovel tumble away past Capley's head as my torso bent clean in half sideways. At least, that's what it felt like. Then I was skidding through the rocky dirt on my shoulder and somebody was punching me. I found the sweet, upturned face of Arnold Bean curled into a frown. His fists rained down on my face as he cried something like, Nope, nope, nope. Then he got a particularly good one in and my jaw snapped sideways, knocking me flat unconscious. I woke to Arnold sitting beside my bed, caressing my hair with his stubby fingers and gently sobbing. He had an idiot's face, which, if you hadn't met one, is a face devoid of guilt. His was a child's pure and undiluted sorrow, expressed to the absolute degree by a frown I found almost comical. Couldn't let you do it, he told me. They'll give you the rope. His head nodded in time with his spoken thoughts. I wish you hadn't made me hurt you, Ezra. I wish you hadn't. I can't get it out of my head now. I hurt you so bad. No, I said, trying to sit up and feeling the full weight of the beating Arnold had handed me. I hissed and gave up on it, settling instead on pulling his hand off my hair and caressing the back of his massive, doughy palm. I did it to myself. You did a good thing, Arnold. You stopped me before I did a bad thing. I didn't like to do it, Arnold said. It didn't feel like a good thing. He put his hands under my arms and hauled me to a sitting position, moving me with such ease I may as well have been stuffed with straw. And that's how you know you're a good boy, I told him, grabbing his shoulder. I smiled, noticing I had lost a tooth for Arnold's troubles, but one of the kind in the back of my mouth where it wouldn't make me ugly. If you hurt people, and you like it, then you're being bad. Like you like it? He asked. Yes, I said after some hesitation. I'm bad, but you're not. You're just doing your best. He nodded sagely, his eyes focused on something between our faces now. He stood without saying another thing to me, still nodding and walking to his bed. Director Prescott entered our hall the open bay of one hundred some odd beds we slept in, a short while after Arnold left my bedside. 
Nurse Marco, a man of considerable proportions despite his occupation, followed closely behind with a stack of bedding cradled in his arms. Mateo Jefferson came next, fresh chains scraping the floor, and Mr. Chifford Luer brought up the caboose. The procession stopped at the foot of my bunk, and Nurse Marco dropped the bedding on the top rack. These were all two-person bunks, by the way, squeaking, rattling, shaking things that would wake you up in the middle of the night because you turned over too fast and set the old metal squealing like an alarm. On your feet for the director, Mr. Ezra Finkel, Mr. Chifford Luer told me in a gruff voice. I smiled at him and shrugged. I'm feeling a little, I tried to say, under the weather, but I didn't manage to finish. He pulled me off my rack and to my feet. I could feel my bruised and loosened brain tumbling around in my skull, and it took some concentration to keep myself from vomiting. He balanced me precariously against the bunk's footside support pole, holding me in place with his free arm. Mr. Finkel, Director Prescott said, smoothing his mustache with his thumb and forefinger. He did this by pressing the two fingers together just under his nose and then spreading them to the edges of his lips. I understand you were assaulted by young Arnold after yourself, badly injuring Mr. Capley. I suppose, sir, I said, curling my arm around the post to keep from falling. You're in something of a stupor, I gather, Director Prescott said with a coy smile, running his fingers down my cheek to my chin and lifting it to get a better look at my face. At the time, I suppose the man was in his mid to late forties, full-grown and then some, at least. I was fourteen at the time and yet to grow into manhood by any measure. He chuckled and let go of me. Your eyes seem fine, he said. If you notice any localized numbness or you can't use the restroom yourself, or you find you can't hold it until you get to the restroom, then be sure to notify the staff immediately. Yes, sir, I said. Nurse Marco looked me up and down. He looked like a drawing of a military man you might see in a drugstore magazine. He had almost no waist to speak of, but his shoulders spread crane-like out from his torso so that his thick, ropey arms seemed to dangle a great distance from his hips. His head was flat and ugly, eyes hidden in the shadow of his thick forehead ridge. Though, when they caught the light just right, you could see something twinkling in there. This is Matteo Jefferson, Mr. Finkel. Director Prescott continued. Matteo kept his eyes on the ground, head hung low over the bundle of personal effects in his arms. He's to be your new bunkmate. Okay, I said. What was that? Nurse Marco all but yelled. His voice wasn't as deep as it ought to have been, but somehow whiny and cracked. Almost feminine, like a woman playing at being a man despite the size and masculine shape of him. It took me aback, but I was too punch-drunk to make much of a reaction. Yes, sir, I said, correcting myself. Where will Capley sleep? He's been moved out to the colored hospital in Point Pleasant, lacking whatever, Mr. Chifford Lewis said, crossing his arms, where he might be for the next couple of years or days, depending on how things go. He narrowed his eyes. And if it's the next couple of days, Mr. Ezra Finkel, you'll be heading to the glory carriage gate sooner than even I ever expected. Thank you, Mr. Lure, Director Prescott said, somewhat sternly. 
Lure rankled at the mention of only his last name, but moved away from me and back behind Prescott, who smoothed his mustache again and pushed Mateo toward me. Take good care of Jefferson, Director Prescott said, turning away and leaving the hall with a trademark sort of abruptness. Nurse Marco gave Mateo one last long look and then followed, but Mr. Chifford Lure stayed behind to lean in and whisper to me, fairly loudly, I should add. If you want to do this darky here, then you man up and do him on the ground, you little freak, he hissed. We don't need no state inspectors coming around and asking questions, and I sure as shit don't need to be hauling half-dead coloreds into town and talking to their kind, giving them money to get hauled out over the hills. He worked his tongue and his lip, checking for a lump of chewing tobacco that wasn't there. You understand me? Yes, sir, Mr. Chifford Lure. I said. He nodded, glared one last, long time at Mateo, and then left. The entire hall breathed a sigh of relief when he'd gone. I fell to my knees and hacked up a stream of yellow bile. Arnold came over in a huff and tried to clean it up with his blanket. The other kids went about their business, talking and trading cigarettes and doing whatever. They didn't bother with me and I didn't bother with them. The others, that is generally speaking. So don't get excited like I might be telling you about them and our exploits like they're some big cast of characters. People kept to themselves at TA, myself especially. Well, people kept away from me. So I didn't bother learning any names and I guess that means you won't learn them either. I pushed Arnold away before he could get my sick up on his blanket, holding the glass shards of my skull together and all but shouting at him until he left. Where the lot of us mad children were in our teens and younger, Arnold was something in the ballpark of about 30 at the time. He didn't know his own age in truth and wouldn't be able to act that age regardless and so he was one of us. And, of all of us, was the only one who seemed to know everybody and whom everybody liked. So, in that way, he gets to be a part of this story and you get to learn his name. Mateo took some time setting his stuff out on his mattress and then carefully putting the few items he owned away in the footlocker at the end of his rack. In that time, I bartered some cigarettes for old toe rags and towels and the like, using that to clean up what I'd left on the tile before it stained and set to stinking. Then I all but fell into my bed, curling up on myself and hoping to sleep. Hey you, Mateo said waking me up perhaps an hour later. The lights in G-Hall, situated on the top of the asylum's three floors, were doused for curfew, but the night itself had yet to fruit in full. As it stood, the last orange traces of light from an otherwise miserable day played over Mateo's soft and oddly beautiful features. I had never seen a mixed person in my life, or if I had, had no inkling of what I'd been looking at and had skipped my eyes over them the way my eyes skipped over most living people. But up close, he was something to behold. His skin was like the age-stained wood of a fine writing desk. The grain sanded flawlessly smooth. And I thank God I wasn't in any state to move or I might have touched him to just slake the thirst of how looking at him made me feel. What? I asked instead, curling up on myself. You hate Negroes? He asked me, more like, stated outright, then asked. Doesn't everybody? I fired back, 
feeling another wave of nausea when the pressure of simply speaking loudly filled my head near to bursting. Lure said you hit that colored boy, Cably, with a shovel because he's black and you don't like black skin, Mateo said. He took a breath like to say something else, but then stopped. I realized he was sitting on the ground beside my rack. He looked oddly comfortable, despite the line of question he was running through. More like he was running through a survey than asking if I was a violent racist planning on hurting him in some fashion. I sighed. If he, or any of his creatures around here, hear that you called him anything but Mr. Chifford Lure, he's going to take it out on you and then some. I said. I turned onto my back and held my hands over my eyes so that I could talk. I have no idea why that helped, but it did. You haven't been here long, have you? Four months, Mateo said, standing and leaning against the rack so he could see my face. I looked at him through the spaces between my fingers. He really was beautiful, almost terribly so. And I closed my fingers again to speak to him. God only knew what I might do if I started to feel for him. For anybody. In that way. Do you know why you're in G-Hall now? I asked. No, he said. So they can send you down to the state penitentiary in glory when you turn 18. I told him. You tried to run, so you're a criminal now. And they've got you by the short hairs. Whatever you were in for, now you're criminally insane and facing a lifetime behind bars. Or here, if you actually lose it before then. You're lying, he said. I actually moved my hands down to roll my eyes at him, and then quickly returned them. Even weak sunlight felt like railroad spikes in my brain. I'm not even crazy. They put me here over some, some goddamn nonsense. Probably, I said. What for? My mother is, was, a white woman, he said. Papa died with all the mothers when Menanga blew way back when. He sniffed, but when I peeked at him, his face was as stoic as ever. I wasn't more than two or so, and Mama washed clothes and did some work in bars up until the consumption caught her, two years ago. Then that was it, and I was on my own. Long story, I said. He glared at me, and I smiled at him. Oddly enough, that made him laugh. I took a breath and looked away, telling myself something. Something. She passed and I was on my own, trying to get work and passing myself off as soldier and I was, he said. Tried to get some assistance and the like, but people got wind of who my mom was and our family history. They, they said I was trying to pass myself off as white. And that was a condition. Caucasoid delusion, they called it. And I got brought up to a judge and here I am. I laughed. He frowned. That's, that's a good one, I said. I took a deep breath and moved my hands off my eyes so he could see I was serious. There's only two people in this place, all right? Those who are, and those who damn sure ought to be. I guess you're just a first kind, which is fine, I sighed. That colored boy I hit, Capley? Mateo nodded. He's the kind ought to be in here, understand? I asked. Mateo gave me a grim look. You've never met him, but he talks to God like they're best friends. And he quotes parts of the Bible haven't been written yet because he hasn't written them. Understand? 
Mateo looked at me for a long time and then nodded. They put me in his bunk when I got here because they thought he'd do me. You understand what I mean by that? Mateo nodded again. Now is a couple years back, but we got along well enough until today, I said, looking at him squarely. Do you know why? You're going to tell me, though, right? He said. Because some people ought to be in here. I said, looking at him a while longer and then covering my eyes. Of the two of us sharing this rack here on out, there's one that won't ever be leaving this place on good terms. They can't keep me here, Mateo said sternly. I wasn't talking about you, I said. And that was it between us for a few days. I woke in the dead of night, feeling something like a rock laying on my chest. My brain, still swimming from Arnold's beating, told me it was a cat. A fat, black thing with shimmering green-yellow eyes just waiting for me to finally stop breathing. I tried to force my chest into action, but it wouldn't go. Neither would my arms or legs, I realized in a panic. Moonlight smeared the hall in striped and triangular patterns of old gold and cerulean. My eyes alone were free to move, to see this. The cat grew heavier. I could feel my chest caving under the weight of it, my ribs cracking like plaster and my lungs being crushed into jelly. I was dying without actually dying. I tried to calm down and listen. I could hear the soft snoring of the others in the hall, the gentle shift of somnambulant limbs adjusting beneath the coarse military blankets. Yet there was something else, something both above and below those comforting sounds of young boys sleeping. An unsteady ticking, an odd clicking, a strange clacking, all together and reminding me in an instant of a cold sheet metal steam pipe adjusting to the sudden heat of a furnace refilled with coal. And like coal, there was an aroma of dust, a light and fragrant scent that fell at once thick and cottony into the throat, gathering and gathering and gathering, choking and dry and filling my eyes with tears that couldn't fall, for they were growing thick, thicker too in this odd haze. I could see it then, floating in like a cloud of ash raising over a burning building to fall over the surrounding neighborhood. And that clicking, clattering, snapping noise grew. Its rhythm intensified until I could hear nothing else. Until I could feel the odd staccatos harmonizing with the springs of my bed frame and my mind made sudden sense of them. This was movement, my brain told me, like of some great insect. And as though that thought brought the thing to life, I could see the shapes of its body played out on the ceiling past the bottom of the rack above me. Capley's old bed, now Mateo's. I saw limbs moving like a great army of living scissors, swishing and slipping past each other as they propelled some thing, some living thing, through our hall and toward me, toward us, toward my immobile form. I could not see it in truth. The moonlight lay behind it, and so all I saw was the thin and insectile limbs, interspersed with and almost impossible to separate from the shadows they cast. Still my breath would not come to me. My lungs would not respond. If I had not led the life I had until that exact point, I might have pissed myself with fear. Perhaps, even, I would have if not for the strange paralysis that befell me. 
I waited for pain. I waited for death. I heard, instead, a noise which made me lust for both. Slow movement played out over the ceiling, and Mateo tried to cry out in his sleep. I heard his voice, familiar though I had spoken to him only the once, making the simplest of beggaries. Mercy, please stop, and all manner of other shameful things that I won't. Will never. Repeat. I could not move to brush away the hot tears running over my own cheeks. Then I heard some sound, a shuddering, sucking noise for which I possess no earthly metaphor. I've heard that before a great explosion there is a draining of air from the atmosphere itself. A vacuum is created that spares nothing, which drags into itself all possible things before that last and violent expulsion. If this thing I heard was not that noise's brother, then it has no family on this earth or in this universe. I clenched my eyes shut. I was so horrified. And then all was finished. I could suddenly breathe and did so, blindly sucking in breath after breath until I was sitting up over my knees and coughing and wheezing through a haze of tears. The entire hall filled with the sounds of these soft, terrified coughs, and so I knew I was not the only one who experienced this, this horror. But when I would ask the others, gently, discreetly, if they'd experienced anything similar in the days and weeks to come, they would demure or grow irate or ignore me entirely. All save one boy, whose soft crying covered the entire hall like a cheap and insufficient blanket that night, leaving the lot of us cold and short of sleep. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey there, Westsiders. I hope you're enjoying another free, independently produced episode of the Westside Fairy Tales. While the Westside Fairy Tales will always remain free and available to the public, why not buy a souvenir of the show from the Westside Fairy Tales merch store at westsidefairytales.com slash merch. Last month, we unveiled our new Stay Safe Out There t-shirt, a unisex tee featuring the show's tagline, and some of Yui Breed Love's original episode art from fan favorite story, Toda Americana, Part 3. You can save 10% on that shirt for the next week with our early listener discount by using code FLIGHTS at checkout. Support independent horror and get yourself a dope souvenir. Head to westsidefairytales.com slash merch and get you something. Now, back to our story. 
Hall felt different the following day. By design, G Hall was filled with the most rambunctious of the kids, given over to the asylum by the state. But you wouldn't be able to tell that looking at the sorry creatures moping around in the blue-gray light that morning. It felt, in fact, like we were all still asleep somehow, or that the sun had never quite risen. Despite the sunlight touching our faces, the world remained dark. Not until breakfast in the cafeteria did some of the vigor come back to the mad boys of G-Hall. I know for a fact, for certain now, though I had a strong inkling then, that whatever had transpired that last night had fouled the hall somehow, and a lot of us along with it. I had nobody worthwhile to share this information with, however, as the rest of the boys gave me wide berth in both the cafeteria and in life. All save sweet, stupid Arnold who plopped down on the bench across from me and dug into his, I think it was porridge, with the steady gracelessness of a half-starved hog. I watched for a while and saw nothing amiss with him, though he passed me an oddly guilty look I couldn't quite place. How are you this morning, Arnold? I asked. He shook his head and kept to his meal. That would be it for that, then, but his reticence told me all I needed to know. Mateo limped into view a moment later, dark eyes focused on the floor as he tried to find somewhere to sit without giving away his intentions to do so. I tried to remember if he'd had that limp the night before, when he'd made up his rack above mine. I decided he most definitely hadn't. I called him over, not bothering to put on a show of false friendship. He saw the invitation and scanned the cafeteria again before settling on joining us. He sat and went to work on his breakfast in much the same manner as Arnold, not bothering to say a single word to me. Something strange happened last night, I said, eating my own meal slowly. Mateo stopped, turned his eyes to look at my tray, and then went back to his food. I let the silence linger until he felt he had to answer. So? He whispered. That was you crying, I said. I know it was. I don't know what sort of reaction I expected. I had hoped for some outpouring that might explain whatever happened last night. If anything, he was on the top rack and, therefore, able to see a great deal more of the hall than I could. I can't even tell you why I cared. I don't generally care about things, not anymore. That ended when they sentenced me to the asylum. What Mateo did do was glare at me, slurp down the remainder of his bowl, and then slam the cheap, thin-walled tin onto his tray before storming off. I watched him go, dipping my spoon down for another bite of my own food. I hit nothing but the flat surface of my tray. I looked and saw Arnold slurping down the lion's share of my breakfast. God damn you, I said, flicking my spoon off his forehead. This didn't faze him one bit. I pushed my tray at him and stood to leave. You clean it up then. The following days and nights were as normal as one could expect in the asylum. The hall retained that sticky, unclean feeling, but there were no more odd events in the dark. Still, I often heard Mateo startling himself awake in his sleep. His fits would shake the bed and set it to creaking. I kept on him about whatever it was that had happened that night. 
There was no real reason for this other than being in the asylum is almost no different than being in prison, and I had nothing else to occupy myself. Our days consisted of little more than being moved from place to place. Hall, showers, cafeteria, work, and any break in the monotony was welcome. But, I can hear you asking, didn't we receive some sort of treatment too? No. Flatly, no. And there was no suggestion we would ever receive any. This was a place where they put young things nobody wanted to deal with, and once we were here, there was no profit never seeing us released, thus the work detail. It was on work detail that I finally got Mateo to speak to me. The nasty wounds on his arms, left by Rex's teeth, it healed only for his ankles to be chafed raw by his new leg chains. He'd never had to wear them before, but after a few weeks, he'd gotten the hang of it. It's something like I don't know what, he said suddenly, face dark and fixed on the dirt. The shovel nudged the earth but didn't break it. I kept working, letting him find his tongue at his own pace. It comes at night sometimes, most nights really, when you live in A-Hall. He shuddered. Kids call it the ticky-topper, on account of it. On account of it gets on you, like a tick. He paused. And how when, once it gets a taste for you, it doesn't want to let go. He said nothing for a long time. Is that why you ran? I asked. He nodded. You know, I've been in here a long, long time and I never heard about anything like that. His eyes found mine, suddenly sharp and somehow darker. His knuckles turned white on the shaft of the shovel. Yeah, well, I heard about you, he hissed. And I don't need you telling me what you know and don't know. It was my turn to get angry. What have you heard about me? I asked, voice steady and clear. Tell me. I heard you killed a boy in Blunt, he said, raising his chin. I could tell he was glad to finally have some power, but this little show was his way of holding on to something that could make him feel less helpless. A common, forgivable sin in that place. I heard why, too. I heard that you're a... I tapped the raw flesh over his ankle bone with the sharp edge of the shovel. Not much, but enough to let him know to be quiet. If you finish that sentence, I said, if you ever... Say that word you've got sitting on the edge of your tongue right now. I will open you like an old coat. He glared at me, but he didn't say a thing. Capley got the same warning. He just didn't take it. We went back to working and didn't say anything to each other for a few days. In the meantime, it came again. It didn't herald its own coming like the last time, this... Ticky-topper. I woke to the screeching of steel as the rack bucked me gently up and down over my own mattress. I tried to get my lungs moving at my brain's command. The sheer amount of energy I was trying to use should have shot me face first into the bottom of the rack over top me. Hard enough maybe to brain me unconscious, but I didn't budge an inch. I could have given myself a heart attack as I desperately tried to move my body, listening to the horrible sounds coming from above me. Instead, the colder, uglier parts of my mind, the ones that had led me to this place, took over and chilled my frayed nerves. 
I realized then that I wasn't suffocating, but that my lungs were simply moving slowly, taking the shallow breaths of someone in a deep sleep. I'm asleep then, I thought to myself. Or, or at least my body is asleep and my brain is awake. Above me, I could hear the sounds of two throats breathing. One of them sounded pained and muffled. The other was louder and making a sort of noise I had no reference for. Though, perhaps, I did. I focused on trying to wake myself up, thinking of my body in pieces. Once I relaxed, it all seemed to fall into place. I could feel the tips of my fingers, could even move them just a bit. My toes came next, and then I was rotating my ankles and wrists. I felt it now, that same sticky, unclean feeling that lay over the hall after this creature's last midnight visit. This invisible stuff was touching all parts of my body, but losing its hold as I worked the life back into my limbs. I was moving my arms like snakes, only barely cognizant of the noises above me, when I regained control of my lungs. I took a long, sucking, whining breath that filled the entirety of my chest and made my head swim from all the fresh air. It was only half a second later I realized just how loud I had been. The tiki-topper stopped moving, and I could hear its wet, raspy breathing above a more familiar sound. Mateo crying. Sobbing, really. And I could tell his face was pressed deeply into something thick and cottony. His pillow, probably. I lay perfectly still at perhaps the last possible second before the thing, this ticky-topper, ducked down to look at me. I was not prepared for what I saw, and thank God my body was still half-paralyzed, or I might have been so badly startled I would have given myself away. As it stood, I made myself utterly motionless, closing my eyes to mere slits and peeking at it through my eyelashes. I shouldn't have been able to see much of anything. Unlike that first night, the moon wasn't full and bright. Instead, I saw the glow of the thing's eyes. They burned with cold, orange light, like the embers of a coal fire through smoked glass. Sickly numbness spread over my body as the light of its unearthly vision fell over my skin, a cousin to the paralysis that had taken me in my sleep. I dared a glance at the thing as the pool of orange light trailed down my body toward my feet. There was little illumination to see by, as I mentioned, but I could make out some of its features. Enough, at least, to tell this creature was, by degrees, based on a human being. But the proportions of its nose, its mouth, its eyes, they were all wrong. And, to top it off, the positions of the thing's mouth and nose had been switched so that its mouth gaped open in the center of its head. It moved on a jaw that seemed to be hinged at the back of its skull and though I could see little else of that odd apparatus, I could see the teeth. And there were many. And there were many. It finished its inspection of me and returned to the top bunk. There were two hard shakes of the bed and Mateo cried out, his mouth seemingly no longer blocked by whatever had covered it. Then there was an odd thumping and clicking as the thing made its way across the ceiling and out of the hall. I waited until I was sure it was gone, and then resumed my attempts to get my body back under control. It was slow going, but soon enough I was sitting on the side of my bed and taking long, controlled breaths. Following this, 
I stood to make an inspection of Mateo, wanting to see what the creature had done to him. Hoping, I suppose, that somebody else had experienced this in earnest and I hadn't actually lost my mind. The boy was curled up on his side, face buried between his knees under the badly twisted bed sheets. Sweat stippled his forehead and soaked the flat, shapeless pillow he'd been given. I don't know what I did that caused him to look at me, but look he did. His eyes were wide and fearful. Hurt shone in them in a way I'd never seen. Are you okay? I asked, not knowing what else to say. He hugged me then, his arms wrapping around my shoulders and pulling me close in an instant. It almost knocked the breath out of me. It was so easy then, in that place, to forget that we were children. I had forgotten a long time before that, and the sudden memory of just how young and fragile we were struck me in the heart like a knife. I wrapped my arms around the boy and crushed him against my chest, thinking of the smell of a river in spring, dreaming in an instant of cool water rushing over my arms and sucking what little heat the sun had given me free of the flesh. Mateo ran again the next day. I had slept after all that, I don't know how, and woke to the disjointed sort of screaming one only ever hears in a mental institution. Like I've said, there are two sorts that came to that place, those who were there and those who ought to be there. Of the ought-to-be sort, there were mostly kind and indifferent souls tainted with some malady beyond the comprehension of modern medicine. They saw demons and carried dozens of mad voices in their heads, Some of them were born crooked in body or mind, and so were trapped in a diminished sort of life where they could barely understand this world, much less live in it. These latter few, like poor Arnold, didn't take well to stress. Their minds were like houses of cards, awaiting whatever gentle breeze might blow them to pieces. It didn't help that they associated their own outbursts with the inevitable pain of the orderly's rough and violent suppressions. Memories which only seemed to surface in times like these and served only to make them more distraught. I learned to read these moods soon after my incarceration in this place. Like a flock of birds escaping a raptor, you could find patterns in the frenetic movement that would lead you to the cause. Most all of the time, it was one of the more ill-treated patients suffering a terrible fit or, if they were new, having one of the customary panic attacks that came when they realized their parents were not were never coming to pick them up from this place. This time, it was the second flight of Mateo Jefferson that had caused the commotion. Specifically, it was one of the ward bosses, an orderly named Covington, smacking a truncheon around on the bed frames and screaming for order and quiet while checking under the bottom racks for someone. It took me only a second to realize Mateo had gone, though I thought it strange he was looking here for him. It was like somebody knew he'd fled without seeing it happen. I saw Arnold sitting between the metal bottoms of his rack on the opposite side of the hall, hands covering his ears while he wept into his lap. I decided I'd had enough of this spectacle and slipped Mateo's pillowcase free of the pillow, crouching and making my way through the thick press of bodies trying to get away from Covington's insane noise-making. Up close... The sound of the ringing metal seriously hurt my ears, 
and I could only imagine how badly it bothered the others. It stopped when I flipped the bedsheet over his head and strangled him unconscious, digging my knees into his back and bracing for the impact of him falling to the floor. That was how they always tried to dislodge you, by falling on top of you like that would somehow break your resolve. I released him a few seconds after he stopped struggling and then picked up his truncheon off the ground, giving him a smart whack on the side of the head with it. I had pulled my punch to avoid killing him and I was dismayed when I saw him shuffling and snorting back to consciousness. I delivered another, considerably, sturdier blow and was preparing a second when I heard the telltale trundle of Arnold, my sweet, sweet guardian angel, coming up behind me. I wheeled around on him and pointed the truncheon at his face. The others had grown silent and now watched me or went about their own insane business muttering to the walls and the like. Arnold gave me a glare that was equally hilarious and horrifying. He had little control over his facial gestures. You'll get the rope, he said. Then that's it. The rope and that's it. I'm just helping him get to sleep, I said, giving Arnold a smile that did little to assuage his protective anger. Covington made a noise and then began muttering some ugly little threats under his breath. I turned to see him pushing himself to his feet and smacked him again on the back of the head without hesitation. This strike was loud enough that one of the other patients yelped and began to cry. I turned just in time to point the truncheon at the space between Arnold's lip and nose. His eyes crossed to look at the thick, black hunk of wood. Sleeping, I told him. You haven't broken any promises. I stepped aside and put my hand by Covington's mouth. The wetness of his breathing sickened me, but I smiled at Arnold and gestured for him to do the same. He did, laughing when he felt Covington's weak but steady breath. It tickles, Arnold said. Yes, I told him, smiling. Yes, it does. I clapped him on the shoulder and then left for the stairs. I wiped my fingerprints off Covington's truncheon and dropped it down the laundry chute taking the stairs two at a time until I made it to the common area by the front door. I could hear Rex's happy barking already. The nurses who typically manned the front entrance were already outside, cracking their knuckles in preparation for beating on Mateo. Mateo himself had new bloody marks on his forearms and an ugly gash on the side of his face. His hands were bound with manacles and those were bound to Mr. Chifford Lure's horse. The beating commenced and I watched from the shadows of the front door. You might like me to say I did something heroic to intercede, but I didn't. I honestly didn't even consider such an inappropriate action. Even when Mateo's sad eyes, well, his sad eye, the other was closed shut with swelling, found me in the doorway, I didn't feel any urge to budge. I only barely noticed anyway. My attention was on Director Prescott and the few orderlies not joining in on the beating. They chatted idly, pointing here and there around the grounds, no doubt congratulating themselves on the capture. All save one of them, who stood between the violence and plaudits, watching Mateo's beating with much the same dispassion as myself, though there was something else there as well. A touch of regret, like he was watching a freshly bloomed flower being crushed under the heel of a boot. Then Director Prescott got his attention and made something of a show of shaking his hand and clapping him on the back. Job well done, that look said. 
more than the man with the dog that had brought the boy back, more than the disciplinarians kicking the last of Mateo's baby teeth out of his mouth, and more than the other nurses who had searched the wards, you in particular. Good job, you. Good job, Nurse Marco. I watched a second longer and then returned to Hall G. Covington had apparently woken and left in that time. Perhaps he was too embarrassed to raise the alarm about his assault, or perhaps the alarm never was raised. I thought about asking Arnold what had happened with the man after I'd left, but that sweet boy was sitting beside the window and singing one of his nonsense songs to the birds that liked to rest outside the bars. So I left him alone and went back to sleep. Hey there, Westsiders. This episode's a long one, so we have time for a second ad break. But if you hate hearing me talk in the middle of the episodes or ads in general, why not consider paying just $1 a month at patreon.com slash westsidefairytales for early release, advertisement-free releases of the regular stories and the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club episodes. For 5 bucks, you also get PDFs of the monthly stories laid out just like a real novel and access to the Behind the Story episodes where I go in detail about the method behind creating the month's story and any inspirations I have. You get even more content and free merchandise at the higher levels, so please consider supporting the Westside Fairy Tales today. Now, back to our story. I decided that afternoon, while feeding Mateo his porridge in bed, that I no longer wanted him in this place. It depressed me. I hated it. The self-satisfied looks the other nurses passed each other when I had to wheel him down to the baths or to his therapy sessions made me sick. I say therapy sessions, but in fact Mateo's beating had been severe enough the duty physician demanded to see him at least weekly to ensure he wasn't, or wouldn't become, permanently disabled. Moreover, This boy had thrown my simple understanding of my new universe completely off track. There were people who were here, and people who ought to be here, but now I had to contend with a third option. People who should never have been brought to this place. Creatures for whom this miserable stack of brick and mortar meant nothing but harm, and an absolute harm at that. Wounding that would not strike just them, but also the world for it would never enjoy the bounty of their presence in it, and I would not allow that beauty to be deprived. The simplest part of this plan was ensuring his broken leg healed properly, and that he retained the vision in his swollen eye. The cuts the beating had left him I thought would ruin his flesh forever, disfiguring him immeasurably. But as the months passed, as fall turned to winter and then to spring, the wounds closed and the scars they left were fairly insignificant. The nastiest of them was a flat, brown-gray line that crossed his left eye from forehead to cheek. It served only to make him look more roguish, giving his young and beautiful features a decidedly grown-up tilt. I should remark that, though I am fairly generous in my compliments to Matteo, I never felt anything like a romantic attraction to him. I loved him, I can tell you that easily. Though why I loved him I have some difficulty putting to words. In any case, 
It should simply be said that we became friends as I nursed him back to health, and so we talked a great deal as well. He mostly told stories about his mother and their lives in Morgantown before she died. She was a nice woman and did her damnedest to get him the education she said he deserved, though he told me he couldn't make heads or tails of what she meant by that. I asked him who sent him here, which of his relatives, and he looked at me with wide eyes. Said he was my uncle, he said, a man named Gulliver. I laughed. Was it Gulliver Loeb? I asked with a chuckle. I had asked as a joke because it was the only name I knew with Gulliver in it, though it was frankly impossible. Mateo glared and sat up in his bed. A move that pained him, but that he could manage all the same. How the hell do you know that name? He asked. I laughed harder, patting him sympathetically on the leg. Are you, are you serious about this? I asked. He gave me a dark nod. I shrugged and shook my head. He had some business dealings with my father once upon a time. Dad didn't like him much, but if you're related to him, then your mother wasn't exaggerating with that talk about the education you deserved. He's rich? Mateo asked, laying back on the pillow. His father's rich, I said. That'd be your grandfather, I suppose, assuming you are not mistaking who you spoke to and that I'm not making a mistake either. I sighed. Maybe you'll get to find out when you're out of here. Sure, he said glumly. Then, maybe. Without looking at me, he asked, Why are you here? You got unknown family let you down too? I smiled, fixing the simple cotton and wood splint I'd been working on into place. He hissed when it tightened. My family did the best they could for me, I said softly. I bear them no ill will for putting me here. By all considerations, it's better than what might have been visited on me for what I've done. God, you talk weird, he said. I flicked his mending arm and he laughed. I fell in love with somebody and they... I sighed. He... He betrayed me. He, Mateo asked, a touch of concern in his voice. I don't know what I expected from him, but I wasn't offended. Yes, I said. He. I didn't know where to go from there. I considered trying to comfort Mateo to convince him I wasn't some slinking predator, but I didn't have the strength to perform that song and dance. I finished and lay down in my rack, looking up at the dark underneath where Mateo lay. There was a long silence. What did you do to him, that, that boy? He finally asked. The softest notes of friendship lingered in his voice and I might have cried for hearing them. I killed him, I said flatly, and then someone else as well. I tested every current of air flowing in that dark hall, that forgotten repository of the mad and dangerous, for any hint of how he'd taken that news. But I could gather nothing. No note of concern, of fear, of surprise, of anything. After a time, breaking with character, I spoke first. You're not going to die in here, Mateo, I said softly. I won't allow it. Sometimes I want to, Ezra, 
he replied almost immediately. Once I'm fixed up again, I know it's going to come back. The Tiki Topper. It likes the pretty ones. That's what it told me. I could hear him sobbing. Despite myself, I could feel my teeth grinding, and I could smell the soft sweetness of that springtime river in the hills down in Blunt. I could hear them laughing at me again, and I could feel the rock in my hand, clenched so tightly the sharp corners of it cut painfully into the skin of my fingers. And above all that, I could hear her laughing. That tall, spindly creature I'd found in the woods. The woman thing that had made such odd plans and predictions for me, asking not a dime or drop of blood in payment. The ash tree, bellow legs, Angie Friday, the Witcham woman. My thoughts turned to that terrifying spindly creature as I shuffled away from the chain gang the next day. It was the other halls they expected to do the intelligent work, planting and digging furrows in nice parallel lines. Us and G Hall were given hard earth and shovels to tool around with while the more important work was done down at the further ends of the field. These vital tasks required oversight as well, because the food we grew here was all that sustained us during the year. As such, it gave me a good deal of time to make my way to the equipment shed. I thought of her as I walked, that twisted creature I found in the woods behind my house one day. There had been a squirrel trapped in the cup where two roots joined at the bottom of an oak tree. It was injured to some degree or sick, I couldn't really tell. I had cornered it with the pointy end of a stick I had sharpened on a rough chunk of old brick I found by the coal shed. Ours was a nice, large house. Father had made his money organizing the timber trade in the region, selling, shoring, and support columns to the mines and rail ties to the railroad companies. He also sold and traded whole forests of ash and pine and supplied most of Middle West Virginia with the poles they used to hang the power lines across the state. Then the phone lines after that and whatever else men might hang off poles and cross braces and girders. I was queer by any standard, and the other children despised me for that and for my father's wealth. As there were no other children, and blunt then, that were both odd and rich enough for me to associate with, I began spending long periods alone in the woods. It didn't help that father liked to speak with his fists and aboard what my mother referred to as my soft ways. But I didn't feel soft. I felt sharp and ugly like this stick I was pointing at the little squirrel. I could see its heart railing in its chest, its fur standing on end as its beleaguered lungs beat out the sides of its body. I realized I wanted to kill this thing just because I could, and that if I did, it would be a little like flipping off a switch to a part of my heart I no longer needed. Not really, because it was the part for people, and I had no use for them and they no use for me. Then she spoke. You. Boy, she said. The suddenness of the voice, and its position directly above me, frightened me enough that I almost dropped the stick. Almost. I gathered myself and looked up until I saw her, a stretched and dangling thing. Her body was like rotten sailcloth that had gotten tangled in the limbs of the tree. What skin I could see. Most of her was covered in this black fabric, silk, and old leather, 
was corpse pale and withered like an old woman's. Her face, above all things, most horrified me. Her jaw flapped when she spoke as though the bones there were either gone or badly broken, and the entire orifice hung open to enormous proportions. Jagged yellow teeth lined the rims of that gullet, though they looked mostly normal when she smiled and spoke. Two things she was doing right then. You, boy, the squirrel asked me to kill you for bothering it so, she said. But he has little to offer in trade. The lives of squirrels mean little to me, but he knew my name and called me all the same. Her limbs made themselves seen, and she slipped through the back branches to wrap herself around the trunk. Her head hung at a slight angle as she spoke to me, her mouth working like a badly strung puppet. You know me, she said before I could ask. Say my name, boy. You are the ash tree, I said without thinking. You are Angie Friday and Bellow Legs. I paused. You are Molly Longmouth and Tall Jenny. You are the Witcham. The Witcham woman. I stepped away from the tree and the squirrel fled. Angie Friday's face followed the poor thing and I knew she was watching it, even though I couldn't see her eyes. Those were hid behind dark circles of smoked glass. Yes, Molly Longmouth said. Her words were a thousand snakes singing in concert. I fell to my knees, not knowing what to do. How do I know all that? I asked her. She slipped from behind the tree and squatted before me. Her legs were clad in the striped woolen fabric my father wore to work, but also in something else I couldn't wrap my mind around. Something approximating clothing, but in truth was little more than her own natural covering. A bear's fur. A snake's scales. You were born at an odd time, in the heart of my territory. Bellow Legs said. Even kneeling, she towered over me. Her fingers, long and many-jointed, touched my chin. All the things here belong to me in some fashion. Not in the way your father owns the pebbles and stones in that river, behind your house. I own nothing in these lands, but all belongs to me. She smiled, the sides of her mouth curved all the way up to rest beside her eyes, over her cheekbones. Are you going to kill me? Eat me? I asked. No, tall Jenny said, her finger snaking behind my head. You're worth more than a meal to me, sweet boy. Of all you own or will ever own, nothing is more valuable to me than the life that you might live. I saw then the milky madness of the eyes behind the smoked glass and my stomach turned. I would make a deal with thee. Interested? Yes, I said. The answer was true. The ash tree had pulled it out of my deepest heart with little consideration to whatever guile I might possess. It would have been like arguing with my own dreams. You will make only one valuable choice in your life, the witcham woman said. Her eyes were again hidden. To fight 
to kill, to take, or to simply exist peacefully. If you choose the latter, then you choose the latter. I will take no umbrage. But if you choose the former, you loveless thing, I will ensure you enjoy the taste of love before you die. I will keep you breathing until you fully know that pleasure as a man. And all I have to do is fight, I asked. A man who learns to live in violence will never learn another way. Even if he lives a thousand years, violence and all her red sons will be ever at his heels and toes, she said, her voice grim. Do you accept? Yes, I told her, and it was done. The nails of her hand flicked down across my chest and her mark bled slowly, gently through my tattered shirt. The hand of sticks. Then she was gone, at least, as gone as the Witcham can ever be gone from the dark and rolling hills of Appalachia. I touched my chest as I smashed open the lock on the utility shed at the far end of the fields. The building itself was stout brick, but the door was old and partially rotted from poor maintenance. Faded scars remained where she had marked me, so fine and thin against my already pale flesh that only the brightest sunlight might reveal them. Still, they were there. Not a constant companion, but rather an occasional itching reminder. A mostly faded memory that seemed most times more of a passing dream than a living reality. It itched now, the way nasty things do when they heal. I scratched at it gently as I broke the weathered hinge lock and opened the door. Scattered light filled the brick building, pouring more often through cracks and missing mortar than through the door I had opened, though the lion's share came from a refractory set in a boxy alcove on the ridge of the gabled roof. It was simple, dented tin set at angles and the light it passed inward from the sun lay looped and whirled on the walls, making a series of disks in oddly misaligned circles. I found what I was looking for at the back of the shed, a pile of blackened rags kept for polishing various bits of metal around the asylum. I thought I even recognized a couple I might have used myself to shine up the handrails and the stairs or the tack on Mr. Chifford Lure's horse. The rags were kept in a simple, slat-sided milk crate with some red paint around the rim. A marking, I suppose, meant danger. It could also have been the official colors of the dairy farm as well. Who knows? I took a handful of rags and set one of them on the ground. Then I painstakingly rang out each one until the one on the floor had grown damp with used kerosene. I kept near the door during this for fear of knocking myself cold from the fumes, but... In the end, I had what I'd come for, and not a second too soon. I could hear Mr. Chifford Lure humming a song as he made his way to the shed. I heard him grumble as he found the damaged lock, muttering something about the goddamned kids in this place, and then finding a seat on the stack of crates just inside the doorway. I knew he would be here because I'd seen him come this way a hundred times, and it wasn't any great secret how Mr. Chifford Lure spent his free time. From my position, just behind him and a few feet back, I could hear him muttering the words to his newest poem under his breath and the faint scratch of his stubby coal pencil tracing letters onto the paper.
sweet and tawny beast of the field, he mumbled. How I wish I could run like you, to be a horse amongst the daisies, living my life freely and true. He mumbled something like, that's nice, and might have continued for some time if I hadn't wrapped the kerosene-soaked rag over his mouth and nose. I almost expected it wouldn't work, that his constitution would overpower the oily gas or that the kerosene itself wouldn't work as I had predicted. I didn't, you see, truly know what to expect. Only by my own uncomfortable interactions with the stuff did I come up with this plan, figuring that if a small amount of it dizzied me, I'd accidentally inhaled a whiff straight off a rag while working. A large amount would for sure have some greater effect on Mr. Chifford Lure. What happened was that he screamed once. Not a womanish scream of fear, but the guttural yawp only men's throats can produce. A battle cry that shook me to my core and might have made me let up if I were a less focused individual. As it was, that scream of his was the last human sound he ever made. I think what had happened was that the kerosene burned his eyes, which caused the scream. But the scream emptied his lungs, and so that necessitated a refilling. But what he got instead of clean air was almost pure kerosene fumes. He coughed and sucked in more short, panicky breaths. His body rose, easily pulling me off my feet, and then slumped forward onto the ground. My hand protected his face from the impact because of how I was holding him and was badly scraped on the gravel floor. I extricated myself with some difficulty and then searched his pockets, hunting for his lighter. I had originally planned to burn him in the shed to the ground, but as I moved him to get a better position to rifle through his jacket, I saw his face. The man was stone dead, no mistaking it. His face had gone a terrible, pale shade of green and there was foam around his mouth. His eyes were open and looking at me. I thought for a second and then simply placed the kerosene rag in his hand and left the shed, giving a quick look around before stepping into the open. Moira, Mr. Chifford Lure's horse, was stamping and moaning beside the shed. I knew in an instant that she understood he had died and that she wanted to go to him would go to him if the fumes from the kerosene weren't so strong. She passed her baleful eyes over me one last time, then she walked to the front door of the shed laying down and quietly looking at her dead friend as I made my way back to the work line. I washed myself with wet dirt on the work line, though only Mateo was close enough to me to smell the lingering kerosene. He'd watched me trundle back into place, chains clinking on a long walk across the yard, eyes wide and trying to find whatever supervisor he believed would strike down from the hills on a horse and club me to death in full view of God and all creation. It never happened, of course, because the guard staff at the asylum was laughably small even on the best of days. In fact, with Mr. Chifford Lure now dead, the outdoor guard had shrunk to about ten in total. With most of those men on different shifts and spread out along the walls on the front of the camp, there was a little reason to guard the back of the camp, as it opened onto a little more than mountains in the West Virginia wilderness which even a sane person would have trouble surviving in, much less the mental invalids which made up most of the patient population. Did that mean people didn't run that way? No, but they always came back dead or alive within a week or so, either wandering in of their own accord or transported by some farmer or woodsman who found them. But if they ran toward town, 
The only thing that could stop them was bad luck or Rex. And Rex was nothing more than a sweetheart without Mr. Chifford Lure's command. And she would never get those commands again now. It wasn't until supper that we were escorted into our rooms and word of what had happened to Mr. Chifford Lure spread through the camp. Because there was little information and because what did make its way to us in the halls was overly vague, I figured they must have ruled his death a suicide, by misadventure if nothing else. I imagined Director Prescott finding Mr. Chifford Lure's book of horse poems and trying to make sense of that. We, and I suppose Director Prescott as well, given the rumors, had thought Mr. Chifford Lure was going to the shed to masturbate or indulge in some on-the-job drinking. The poetry, I admit, had surprised me. Matteo pressed me for information, but I rebuffed him, changing the subject quickly. I want to sleep in your rack from now on, I told him, giving him a flat look. His eyes became worried, and he almost started to stammer. By myself, you idiot. The boy's almost instantaneous relief irritated me, though only slightly. Why? he asked. Because you're getting pretty again. I said, giving him a mean smile and then tossing his pillow into his chest. He took a wide-eyed gulp of air, holding his pillow tighter, and then shook his head and sat on my bed. He passed my pillow up to me, and that was that. It took five or so nights more than I expected for the stinking, sticking, suffocating feeling to wake me. Again, my chest felt as though a boulder had been laid atop it and my arms and legs, though full of feeling, were not my own. Moonlight, bright as that first night, shone into the hall and colored the ceiling a cold shade of blue. Even as my eyes took this in, I saw the first odd shadows moving crossways over the beds. I made myself calm, moving my fingers free into my arms and my legs, but I wasn't doing this quick enough. Unlike the previous visits, this time the thing, the Tiki Topper, wasn't wasting any time making an entrance. The dull thought surfaced in my mind that maybe it was sick of waiting for Mateo to finish healing. I could see its limbs this time. The moon was bright enough for that. And I really wish I hadn't been able to see them. Despite the peculiarities of my disposition, the detachment, my penchant for thoughtless cruelty, despite all that, the sheer alienness of it sent my heart to racing. It moved on dozens of irregular arms, all of them swooping and clicking and tapping their ways into the cracks and crevices in the ceiling. Some rested, as well, on the metal headrests of the racks or the sills and steel furniture of the hall's large windows. None of these perches made so much as a whisper while carrying the thing's weight, most likely because it was so well spread out amongst them. Inside these dozens of ropey arms, at the near center of the mass, was the body of the creature and the dull orange glow of its eyes passing over the faces of the mad and crippled boys beneath it. The body made no error in its steady, silent floating. It seemed perfectly suspended amongst the mass of quivering, shifting limbs. Those flicked and flittered to this perch or that, or failing to find quickly what they were looking for, would instead creep along whatever surface on their odd, three-toed feet, hunting for something to grab. It made me ill to look at, and still I hadn't freed myself of the suffocating, paralyzing feeling this thing's presence induced. And then it was overtop me. It touched me before it looked at me, 
one of its nubby feet sliding under my covers and down my chest. Lower, over my stomach, lower still. It found what it was looking for and crushed them. A slow, rolling feeling that nearly made me vomit. I whimpered, despite myself, and the thing chuckled in my ear. Its breath found me, a wet and sickening breeze that I could feel leaving condensation on my ear. Do you like that? It asked, knowing full well I didn't. I wasn't in that bed, though, but rather in the river behind my father's house. My shoes were on the river bank by some of the other boys, the ones who had been hiding in the bushes before all of this started. And he was standing in front of me, not this creeping thing of nightmares in the asylum, but something far worse. Something real. His name was Benjamin, and he was beautiful. Not like Matteo, not that wild and raw sort of beauty, but the man-made and cultivated sort. The sort where every hair is in place and every line and curve seems to have been penned by God as some sort of temptation. That sort of beauty. I'd made a game for myself of getting closer to him. Sure, at the start, there was no hope of ever getting what I wanted out of it. I knew, my father ensured, I knew, that my particular desires belonged in no polite society on God's green earth. But what value had that simple stone against the greater temple of a young man's longing? Nothing. Nothing at all. And so I was surprised when Benjamin found me out and invited me to the river behind my house for a meeting. He lived just up the street, he said, and so this was the best way for us to rendezvous in secret. The water in the stream was cool when it should have been cold, and we'd taken our shoes off to stand in the muck there. He had drawn me close, with words at least, and I had gone to him with my heart raging in my chest. I had eyes for nothing but blonde hair and blue eyes and all the rest of creation be damned. Then he had smacked me full in the mouth with a wad of stinking river mud, and the boys had leapt out of the bushes to laugh at me. I fell to my knees and saw my own reflection in the slow-moving water of the river. It was a stream, really, but they called it a river. I called it a river. And in that river I saw a face with no face, just two bright white specks of eyes floating in darkness. I washed myself clean and grabbed a rock. I stood and struck Benjamin in the side of the head with it, surprising myself when he didn't so much as move. He looked at me, but there was nothing in his eyes. Blood began to pour from the gash I had left in his head, and he fell, slowly sinking beneath the smoothly flowing water. A boy pushed me from behind and screamed at me, and I leapt on him. I forgot the rock and pushed this nameless face down, down into the dark and the cold. His arms flailed around and his hands slapped my face, tried to claw at my eyes. I don't remember a thing about how he looked, although they showed me a picture of him at my trial. His name was Michael Green and he was about a year older than me, one of Benjamin's closest friends, the one Benjamin might actually have been in love with if he was that sort. I drowned him while the other boys screamed on the shore, screamed for help that came far too late. My own father, in fact, thinking he was coming to save me. I felt now like that boy might have felt then, trapped beneath cold and suffocating pressure. I was him, 
laying on my rack so many years later, looking up into my own face as I hurt myself, orange eyes glowing in my own large and misplaced mouth, splitting open to reveal a long and thickly pebbled tongue. Did you both think you were clever? The orange eyes asked, and then I was back again in the asylum. My chest itched. Burned. Switching beds. Its voice was syrupy and thick. Disgusting. Like a man drowning in a honey pot. Its orange eyes turned up gleefully at the bottom of its face. Or perhaps the top of it. Now you are mine too and I will call on you whenever I feel like. Both of you sweet, soft things. You can't hide from me. Understand. He squeezed me and I yelped, forcing myself not to react too soon to this intrusion, to the disgusting feeling of him on me. He moved his hand underneath me, I need not describe where, and prepared to defile me absolutely. The orange glow of him passed down further, further, off my face and closer to where he intended to hurt me. In that brief second, I inched my fingers up the sleeve of my nightshirt, an inched free my most valuable piece of contraband. I took a deep breath and prepared myself. Are you ready for me? The ticky topper sneered. I was ready before you walked in the room, I said. Its eyes widened and turned toward me, clearly not expecting much more than an inarticulate whine. I buried the makeshift knife a broken slice of shovel head I'd sharpened in secret over the past few years and bound up with strips of old shirt into the thing's left eye. It howled, and the puke-orange eye spilled out onto my sheets, still glowing. I maintained a good grip on its head. There was some hair I could grab, and I stabbed at it as much as I could. I missed several times, but when I struck home, I could feel the thing lurching and twisting in pain. Its arms were individually quite weak, each of them like a subdivision of an adult arm. They swung for me and eventually knocked me back onto the rack, causing my weapon to slip from my hand. I expected a counterattack, but it didn't come. Instead, I saw the shape of the thing cross two racks and then stumble and fall to the floor. I set myself to regaining control of my waist and hips as it dragged itself toward the communal bathrooms and stairs at the end of the hall. It had made it through the doorway as I rounded off the rack and onto my feet. Ezra, Mateo whispered as I landed. Apparently the thing's odd magic had lost its hold on the room. I could hear the others waking as well. I gripped Mateo's hand and then set off for the thing, finding it just a few feet beyond the door. What I saw happening to it nearly stopped me in my tracks, but only just nearly. The dozens of limbs on the left side of it were still trying to pull it along, but those on the right side were clicking and popping and snapping together, weaving into each other like lengths of a cord making rope. Suddenly I was looking at the fully formed arm of a human being, white and thickly muscled, but covered as well in dozens of cuts that started and stopped abruptly in places, as though they had begun in one place and ended in another, with no connection to be found between them. It turned and I saw its misshapen head performing that same magic act, cracking sideways and then closing so that the mouth and nose and eyes aligned the way you'd see on any human face. 
The remaining eye still glowed dull orange, but it had shrunk to the size of a normal, adult eye. And so I could recognize the owner. It was Nurse Marco, of the ward that Matteo had transferred out of. Not much of a surprise, but I also didn't care. This was all coincidental to what I had planned. His shirt lay unbuttoned on his chest and would have fallen completely away had it not been pinned in place by my knife. When I pulled the blade free, a torrent of blood came with it. Marco made some sort of plea I could only barely hear, much less pay attention to. My eyes were fixed on the pale symbol carved into his chest. The hand of sticks, I thought, bending down to touch it. It was the same shape and relative size as mine, though rougher and clearly self-administered. A curious addition to an already curious night. My own shirt had been ripped to pieces during the earlier fray. It was a very cheap and flimsy material, and he could see that same mark on my chest. His eyes were wide and confused. He tried to ask me a question, but I started slitting his throat and that threw him off some. He slapped at me with the rapidly weaving threads of his left arm and even his leg, trying to keep me from finishing the job. The hunk of sharpened shovel steel made a fair puncture, but was terrible for cutting. It took me several minutes to finish sawing down to his bone, and at that point I surrendered the effort. All the while, his now human hands made feeble attempts to push me away, rubbing over my face and neck and chest. Finally finished, I stood, breathing heavily and letting the din of the hall fill my ears. It had been there all along, but the moment between Marco and I had been so intimate, so intense, I had gone temporarily deaf. Ezra, Matteo said. He was standing behind me. Those who are here fall into two camps, I said to him, tossing away the all but ruined steel. I put my hands on his shoulders and smiled. Those who are simply here. His eyes were horrified beyond anything I'd ever seen. I inwardly hoped he could forgive me for what I'd exposed him to one day, and pulling him close, laid a single bloody kiss on his forehead. And those that ought to be. I told him, letting him go and stepping back, leaving my bloody handprints on his neck and shoulders. It's time for you to go, Mateo. I'm going to go downstairs. You wait a bit, and then make a run for the front gate. Hop a train to anywhere and figure things out for yourself, okay? He nodded. Thank, he tried to say, but I shook my head. Don't thank me. I told him. Somebody like you might make you sick someday to remember how you thanked me for this. I sighed, tilting my head and smiling at him one last time. Thank you, Mateo, and goodbye. I walked downstairs and into the main hall where some of the night shift were already congregating, asking each other where all that noise was coming from and what they should do about it. One by one, their eyes fell on me and they went silent. I raised my arms out to my sides, letting them get a good look at me. Disheveled, bloody, and with my eyes closed and face toward the sky, they fell on me. The beating felt like nothing, nothing at all, though I suspected it might kill me. And if it didn't, perhaps the rope in the gatehouse at the West Virginia State Penitentiary in glory finally would. 
Poor sweet Arnold was upstairs and unable to remind me of that at the moment. But it didn't matter. As I lay on the ground, arms still out to my side and with two full-grown men standing on each, I raised my eyes again and saw Matteo Jefferson standing in the back hallway, wings wide and ready for flight. I smiled at him, despite my broken teeth and closing eyes, and he nodded at me. Then he was gone, and all the world was darkness and pain. But in the black center of my worthless heart lay the face of Matteo Jefferson, and I accepted that the strange and awful creature's deal had come true. The witcher woman had paid in full, and before the end, in that deepening numbness, I had known love. Love. Sweet love. Well, folks, that was The Three Flights of Matteo Jefferson. Have you ever had to stay in a psychiatric hospital overnight, either on purpose or against your will? Have you ever done something horrifying for love? Let us know in the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. The Horror and Lit Club is a place where fans of the show, some call themselves Westsiders or even Westies now, can talk to each other about the show, the recommendations, and anything else that comes to mind. The only real rules are don't be a dick to each other and try to keep your posts focused on horror and literature. But even that last rule is pretty soft, so come on by. Just search for the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. Hey folks, if you didn't know, each episode of the Westside Fairy Tales takes something in the ballpark of 40 plus hours of work. Most of that is writing, reading, rereading, rewriting, and editing again and again until the stories are just where we want them. On top of that is the additional time sink of recording, editing, and all the miscellaneous extra things like paying taxes, marketing, and website and podcasting hosting fees. There are a lot of ways to support our work here, and the easiest by far is to just buy yourself a nice new official logo mug from the merch store at westsidefairytales.com slash merch. Like I said during the promo break, we have plenty of options, and it's a great way to support the podcast and get a little something you can hold in your hands in return. Last month, we unveiled our new Stay Safe Out There t-shirt, a unisex tee featuring the show's tagline and some of you we breed love's original episode art from fan favorite story, Toda Americana, Part 3. You can save 10% on that shirt for the next week with our early listener discount by using code DOGSTAR at checkout. For those of you who hate advertisements on podcasts, for just a dollar you can get rid of those and not have to worry about hearing them ever again, at least on the West Side Fairy Tales. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales and subscribe at the $1 level. That'll give you access to an RSS feed you can plug into most any podcatcher to listen to the special episodes at your convenience. For $5, you get access to the monthly ebooks of the episodes as well as an entire backlog of story PDFs from the last season and a half, as well as access to the exclusive Behind the Story episodes in which I discuss the creation of the month's story and talk at length about a million other things that sort of kind of inspired me to write it. And of course, the most important thing you can do to support us is to just share this show. Don't sweat leaving a review on Apple, but if you could share this episode on Reddit, on Facebook, Twitter groups, or even in forums you're a member of, it helps the show immensely. So if you like the West Side Fairy Tales, please, please, please share this episode with the world. 
Next month, we wrap up this season of the West Side Fairy Tales with the story of a young man being brutally assaulted in an alley by a thing from another world. The next morning, he realizes something is now growing inside him, and obviously, he wants it out. He soon finds, however, that help is anything but forthcoming. I hope you'll join us in July for our story, The Carrier. And until then, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Episode artwork by Yui Breedlove. All content here in copyright 2020, WSF Productions, LLC. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.